Uh, go back to Mark chapter number one. That's where we're going to be tonight. We're going to be several other places, though. Um, I'm going to start off reading a few verses from the Old Testament, if that's okay. And tonight I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God and what Jesus mentions here in Matthew, in Mark chapter number one, um, when he says, Repent and believe the gospel. The time is at hand. Uh, well, I guess I should just get there and read it, shouldn't I? It says in John, uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Listen to these verses in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, the Bible says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. I just get goosebumps thinking about that, what that verse means. Do you? I get excited about that. The kingdom of God is going to stand forever. Amen. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from thenceforth even forever. And then the psalmist says in Psalm 145, verse 13, Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. And so when Jesus steps on the scene in his earthly ministry and he says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. What was he talking about? I hope tonight we can begin to gain a better understanding of what he was referring to when he was talking about the kingdom of God and how the Jews thought they would get into the kingdom of God, but how really we enter into the kingdom of God. So let's pray. Father, help us tonight to better understand this topic that really is too big for a 20-minute uh, sermonette or devotion. But Father, may it stir our imaginations. May we um, grow in our understanding of your word tonight as we put scripture uh, with scripture, comparing scripture with scripture, being noble Bereans. And Father, um, thank you tonight for your kingdom and that um, it is a reality presently, but it's also yet to be in the future. And so we live in the tension between the now and the not yet as one theologian put it, the already and not yet of your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray tonight that this would motivate us to not just be future kingdom-minded, but to realize that we have a responsibility right now to bring forth your kingdom in the places in this world where clearly your will is not being fulfilled. Um, so, Father, challenge us tonight, motivate us, and may we be um, obedient to what your Spirit says to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We see here that Jesus was um, referring to something that the Old Testament prophets had mentioned, as I read in Daniel chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 9, Psalm 145. He says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Repent ye and believe the gospel. And so Jesus was talking about a kingdom that he was presenting, and I believe, and of course there's a lot of debate amongst theological circles about was the offer of a kingdom legitimate? What if the nation had received Jesus as their Messiah? How would things have gone down? And, and as best as I can tell, as you study God's word, I think the Romans still would have killed him. Uh, he, he still would have given his life, but he would have risen, and, and, and the kingdom would have been ushered in right there. As you study the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, it seems like that Peter, in those two sermons, was presenting an opportunity for the nation of Israel one more time to receive the risen Christ as their Messiah and to usher in the kingdom. And therefore, the gospel would go forth to all nations through Israel. God was long-suffering with the nation of Israel, and he wanted them to usher in this kingdom. The kingdom of God was at hand, and it was a legitimate offer. Of course, we know as you read Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 8, however, that the Jews rejected Jesus. They stoned uh, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and then the persecution intensified in Acts chapter number 8. And of course, as God always does, he likes to turn things on its head. And he took one of the chief rejectors, one of the chief persecutors, and saved him on the road to Damascus. His name was Saul. And then Saul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And so we see this interesting uh, uh, storyline unraveling in the book of Acts. And so Israel is put on the sideline for a time, Romans 9 through 11. You see how Israel rejected Jesus and God cast them off, but only for a time. He's not done with Israel. Uh, of course, we know that in prophecy, Israel will come back on the scene and, and they'll be grafted back in. And so God's not done, but we do see how this kingdom was a legitimate offer. And what we live with is in this tension between the idea of his kingdom has come, and yet we don't see his kingdom in full um, revelation. We, we don't see it everywhere. Um, the best way to define what the kingdom of God is, is it's where God's will is done. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 6, he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so, um, and so the kingdom of God is where God's will is done. And, and we know that as we live on this earth, there are places in this earth where God's will is not being done. We, we can see that evil is still running rampant, and it seems to be winning the day. But the reality is, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his kingdom has come, and we're not just living for that future kingdom. God has called us to be ambassadors here. Uh, this church is like an outpost in, in a foreign land, but... We're, we're an uh, embassy for the kingdom of God right here, and we're to advance his kingdom. And so God's kingdom has this dual dimension between it being a present reality as we study Scripture. We see that clearly coming out, but also there's still this future reality that we're waiting for. And so the kingdom of God is a fascinating subject to study through. You'll, you'll see that the kingdom of God and the phrase kingdom of heaven get interchanged, and I believe that they mean the same thing. I'm going to take you to a scripture tonight that really does Jesus himself uh, in Matthew chapter 19 really equates the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God as one and the same. I think the reason that there's confusion is because in the book of Matthew alone, 
the phrase the kingdom of heaven is used. And many scholars believe that the reason Matthew uses kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God is because being written to a Jewish group, they would not want to say the name of God. And so Matthew used the phrase the kingdom of heaven. There's been other um, explanations saying that the kingdom of heaven refers specifically to the earthly kingdom and the kingdom of God refers to the more overarching universal kingdom, uh, not just dealing with the physical realm on earth, but with the spiritual realm, with the entire universe. And so there's also that explanation. And so we see that God's kingdom, when Jesus steps on the scene, he is offering legitimately this kingdom. But ultimately, when he uses this phrase, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. Ultimately, he's talking about the arrival of the king. Because in order for there to be a kingdom, there has to be a, a king. And he's the king. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. And he says here to repent and believe the gospel. And so we're going to talk about this tonight. And, and what I want you to think through is to think about the Jewish um, understanding of the kingdom of God and how they thought they were going to get into the kingdom. All right? Um, the Jews, their idea of entering in the, into the kingdom was one of three ways. They first thought that their pedigree would allow them entrance into the kingdom. They thought that because they were from the seed of Abraham, that they were somehow special privileged people. And in a sense, they were. God had set them apart. And through the nation of Israel, the Messiah, the Savior of the world would come. But they thought they put way too much uh, stock in their pedigree. Hold your place here in Mark chapter 1 and turn with me for just a moment to John chapter number 8. I want you to see how the Jewish people viewed this. Um, they thought that they would be able to enter the kingdom because of the very fact that they were born into this nation, that they had a certain pedigree. John chapter number 8. Um, John chapter 8, not John chapter 9. It always helps if you're at the right chapter. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 39, it says, They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus saith unto them, If you were Ab truly Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, which, of course, he's alluding to Abraham's faith. And how they, while they were viewing things as a physical pedigree, Jesus was alluding to Abraham's spiritual pedigree. They which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham, Galatians 3 tells us. And so for the Jew, they thought that by the very fact of their pedigree, they would uh, have entrance into the kingdom of God. They also thought that their performance under the law would bring them entrance into the kingdom of God. If you look over at Matthew chapter number 5... In verses 19 and 20, Jesus is um, giving the Sermon on the Mount. And he says here in verse 20 of Matthew 5, he says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So that should have alarmed the Jews because they were certainly trying to get into uh, heaven, into the kingdom of God through their performance and through their pedigree, but also they thought that the kingdom of God would come forth and they would be able to enter in and, and usher this kingdom age in through political or military power. And I think you see these things playing out through several passages of Scripture, and I want to point out some of those tonight. So um, with your spot there in Mark chapter number 1, let's look over at Philippians chapter number 3 for a moment. I want you to see how Saul, um, in his conversion, um, 
Saul gives an insight as to how he used to view his ability to be able to be qualified before God, to enter into the kingdom of God. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, just listen to these verses. He says here, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. (laughs) That's an interesting way to put it. Who is he referring to as dogs? Well, beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision. So he's alluding to these Judaizers who thought that it's the keeping of the law that justifies you before God. So it's your performance that gets you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. He says, though I might have, uh, he says, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, uh, uh, he, he, he might trust in the flesh, I more. I mean, look at Paul's credentials. If anybody's going to get into the kingdom of God based on his pedigree and based on his performance, it would have been Paul. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless? Wow. So if anybody could say, hey, my pedigree and my performance is going to gain me entrance into the kingdom of God, it would have been me. I had the credentials. I had the qualifications. But what does Paul say? He lists all that stuff, and then he says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted for loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. I'm thankful for Paul and his bluntness. That should right there put the nail in the coffin that it's not pedigree and it's not performance that gains us entrance or secures us maintenance in the kingdom of God. It's none of that. You take this passage and read that and then you go over to Matthew chapter 19. Turn there with me for a moment. Matthew chapter number 19. As we look at a few passages of Scripture, thinking about how the Jews viewed this idea of entering into the kingdom of God, gaining standing and favor with God, earning righteousness. Matthew chapter 19, verses um, 16 and following. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And he says, and, be, and, and behold, one came to him and said, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Do you notice the question from the young man? What good thing shall I, yeah, you might want to underline that one, do. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So he was focused on what he could do, how he could perform. And Jesus, of course, answers him. And I love how Jesus would do this. He would catch people off guard. He would say, why do you call me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. Now, I think Jesus was responding in a way that should have got the man to think. He should have understood that he was talking to God, right? 
But Jesus then turns it back on him because he knows that the rich young ruler is focused on what he thinks he can do. And so Jesus just cranks it up. (laughs) He's the perfect physician. He knows how to give law to those who think they can keep it. So he says, but if you'll enter into life, keep the commandments. He was kind of leading them along here. And he saith unto them, the young, young man says, which one? Jesus said, thou shalt not do murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What do I lack yet? What lack I yet? Now, he thought he had a pretty good track record. Maybe he was the kind of Jew who had grown up in the synagogue. He was, he was uh, you know, very dutiful in keeping the commandments. But Jesus is a great physician. He doesn't let you off the examination table until he's examined every area. We like to think that we're pretty healthy, but we can't fool the great physician. Look at what Jesus says to him. If thou wilt be, might want to underline that word, perfect. You see, because over in Matthew 5 that we just read a second ago, he says, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're going to perish. Every Jew there that day should have said, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Because those are the best behaved people I know. They follow the law the best. And Jesus just said, unless my righteousness exceeds that, I can't enter into the kingdom of God. What Jesus was trying to get people to see is you can't get there by keeping the law. You can't. This rich young ruler thought he could. And Jesus says, if thou wilt be, you see, the law requires perfection. If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away very He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So the law, given in its true extent, you see, it's it's convenient how we like to make ourselves not look so bad. This rich young ruler came to Jesus that day thinking his pedigree, but more specifically his performance, would get him into the kingdom of God. Master, what should I do that I should inherit eternal life? He thought he was bringing a pretty good report card to Jesus. Look at all the things I've followed to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, according to the law, perfection. He that keeps the whole law and yet offends in what point is what, James says, guilty of all. And so for the Jewish mind, the kingdom of God, they thought that it was their pedigree and they thought that it was their performance under the law that would gain them entrance. This is why Jesus says in Mark 1, repent. Because for the Jewish mind to change their mind about what saves, who saves, and how they're saved was going to be major. It was going to be a paradigm shift. It was going to sound new to them. Do you remember what we studied this morning? There in Mark chapter 1 when he preached in the synagogue of of Capernaum. They said, this is a new doctrine. Well, 
it wasn't necessarily a new doctrine in the sense of this was the revelation that God had been unfolding all the way from the beginning. It was new because it didn't fit inside their box. God has a habit of um, breaking your and my boxes for him. Um, when we try to put him into a little carved graven image, he doesn't like that. When we think we've got, okay, he's really defined by this one attribute. Then you read this passage, you're like, whoa, well, okay, how do, I, how do I take that and combine? See, God is always, there's this tension with God because he's a living God. Now, you might say, well, but pastor, it says God does not change. Yes, his nature, his character has never changed. But how he has been revealing himself down through human history has been unfolding. And so his nature, his character has never changed. But, I mean, look at it. Jesus changed the whole idea of how one gains standing with God. For the Jew, they had missed it. They thought that they gained standing in favor with God. They thought they gained entrance into the kingdom of God through their pedigree and through their performance. But that wasn't how. The Jews expected that the kingdom would be ushered in through their pedigree, their performance, or even through this political or military power. Of course, they expected the Messiah to overthrow the Roman government. They thought that the Roman government was their enemy. But what they didn't fail to see is that their own sin and the devil was their enemy. And Jesus came, the Bible says, to overthrow the works of the devil. So Jesus ushered in a kingdom, the kingdom, in a radically unexpected way. And as you study the Gospels, what you find out is he announced that the kingdom had come upon those whom he had freed from demonic bondage. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. Listen to this verse. It says in Matthew 12, 28, But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. So Jesus was clearly alluding in the Gospels to this idea that the kingdom of God would first be dealing with spiritual issues, which makes sense as, as we studied this morning. The very first miracle that Mark records for us is it was spiritual in nature. He delivered that demon who was in, or he delivered that man from that demonic oppression who was in the synagogue there in Capernaum. And so Jesus is bringing in the kingdom in a radically unexpected way to the Jewish mind. He taught that the kingdom should be received like a child, Mark chapter 10, verse 15. He says, Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. What does that mean, to receive the kingdom of God as a little child? I think what it means is, is and the word specifically for child here is infant. Unless you receive the kingdom of God as a little infant. Well, what is an infant? An infant is completely helpless. You know how you enter the kingdom of God? Completely helpless. You know what Jesus was trying to do with that rich young ruler in Matthew 19? Was get him to the point where he was completely helpless. That he finally realized his pedigree nor his performance would gain him entrance into God's kingdom. It's a gift. Not of works, lest any man should boast. That's what Jesus was trying to do. 
So he taught that the kingdom of God should be received as a little child. He taught that this kingdom would primarily be first and foremost spiritual in nature because he was dealing with the spiritual problem, the spiritual brokenness of mankind. And then he explained that the kingdom belonged to the impoverished. What? That doesn't make sense. Again, to the human mind, it doesn't. But he says in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Again, this idea that the kingdom of God is given to the helpless, to the hopeless, to those who realize they're bankrupt without God. And so Jesus came presenting the gospel of the kingdom of God. But this kingdom would not be inherited by pedigree, John 8, 39. And it wouldn't be merited by our performance under the law, Matthew 5, verse 20. This kingdom is given to those who repent, who change their mind about pedigree and about performance. And all the other foundations for establishing their righteousness before God and come to God helpless and trust in his grace alone. I know we're out of time, but I've got to share an illustration with you as we close that really wraps up what it's all about. You know, whenever I think of the kingdom of God, please forgive me for what I'm about to say, but I just immediately think of the magic kingdom. I don't know why, but whenever I think of the kingdom of God, I think about Disney World. How many of you are with me? Okay, maybe I'm just the only weird one. I think about you know, the magic kingdom. I just think, you know, just for some reason as a kid, that always got in my head. And I read a story recently about a little girl, eight years old. She had grown up in the foster care system. She had never known who her real mom and dad were. And this little girl um, was in a family from about the age of five to the age of eight, and they thought that she was going to be adopted. But this family really didn't understand what it meant to really adopt this little girl. Um, she was not well-behaved at all. Um, she would cause major issues in the family, and this family was trying to integrate her in and adopt her. But when this family would go on their trips to Disney World, they would make her stay back. They wouldn't take her with them because she was so misbehaving and they just didn't want her to ruin their entire family trip to the magic kingdom. Well, at age eight, she was basically abandoned by this, this um, family that was trying to adopt, and she was actually adopted by a new family. And this family, this, this father and mother adopted her, and it, of course, the, the behavioral issues continued. But in this family, they decided to take a trip to the magic kingdom, and guess what? She was included. She's going to the Magic Kingdom with the family. What was interesting is in the month or two before their trip, this little girl was misbehaving like you wouldn't believe. She was doing this. She was saying mean things to her other siblings who she was now a part of this adoptive family. And so the story is told of how she was doing these things, and she got to the point where she said to her dad one night as he was correcting her, she said, I know, Dad, I know what's going to happen. I'm not going to go to Disney World. I'm not going to go to the Magic Kingdom with you. The father wisely said, you're not going to not go because of your behavior. You're, you're going to go because you're a part of our family. Now, 
how you behave, there might be consequences for that, but you're going because you're a part of our family. That didn't sink in with her at first because everything that she had known in her whole life was based on if you do bad, you get bad. If you do good, you get good. Well, the day came where they loaded up the car and she was on her way and they had an incredible day there at the Magic Kingdom. That night, as they were in their hotel after the very first day, um, as he was tucking her in and praying with her, they got to talking about the day there at the Magic Kingdom. And here's what she said. She said, Daddy, I finally got to go to the Magic Kingdom, but it wasn't because I was good. It was because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good, it's because I'm yours. What did the Jew think? The Jew thought that they would get into the kingdom based on whether they were good or not. This is why grace, (laughs) oh me, this is why grace is outrageous to this day to the most religious people. You mean it's not based on my behavior? Yes, and the moment you really believe it, guess what? You start wanting to behave. Because you realize that you're his. And a son of the king is going to start acting like royalty anyway. Behavior becomes so secondary when he's your chief affection. When that kind of grace overwhelms you. That's why the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And so outrageous grace isn't a favor you can achieve by being good. It's the gift you receive by being God. And the kingdom is received by what the king did for us. You see, the kingdom of God was at hand because Mark's going to present this beautiful portrait of the suffering servant king who would give us entrance into his kingdom through what he would do for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's not by pedigree. It's not by performance. It's not by political power. It is by the perfect finished work of the suffering servant king. We're his. That's why we have entrance into the kingdom. Not because we're good. Now, be great if we would, you know, and and when we really believe that all that's true, you know what? You get the good. And you find that there's this spirit of the living God working inside of you wanting, oh, wanting to follow after him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for what your kingdom represents, that it is a kingdom of grace, that the people who are in heaven one day are not there because of their own merits, because of their own efforts. They are there because of the perfect, righteous record of one, the suffering servant king who would lay down his life so that we could be his forever. Thank you that we have entrance into the the kingdom because you've made us yours. May we never forget that. May it motivate spirit-filled living this week. As we live and walk in the spirit in our homes, as we live and walk in the spirit driving behind the wheel of the car tomorrow morning, as we live and walk in the spirit in our jobs, as we live and walk in the spirit when we're all alone. Father, thank you that we're yours. Thank you that we've been adopted into the family of God. And that we're going to your kingdom, not because we're good, but because we're God's. We thank you so much for that. And this is what 
the Jewish people had to change their mind about is how they were going to enter into that kingdom. It wouldn't be by their pedigree. It wouldn't be by their performance. It wouldn't be, be by some political orchestration. It would be because of the perfect finished work of Jesus on their behalf. Father, may we take that message with us into this world this week and share the good news of what Jesus has done and that we have a king who has given us entrance into his kingdom because he laid down his life for us. We thank you for this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.